House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Joining us now is uh, Diane Fanning, a uh, big, big author for uh, True Crime, uh, and uh, we have so many... Uh, Crimes to cover. <laughs> um, thank you for taking the time to uh, be on the show. My pleasure, Al. Oh. Um, so now um, let's let's start out with um, a little bit of your history. Like, uh, have you always been writing true crime, or is this something that's more recent? Well, I I didn't get my first true crime contract contract until two thousand one, and. Before that, I had just done magazine things and, and had tried to write something full length. But when I got hold of a story that just stirred my passion, that's when I was ready to write a book. And, um, and the end result of that was through the window. But it was, a, it was an unusual set of circumstances. I was watching Little Crystal Searles on a TV show, and she had been in a bedroom where Tommy Lancells had come in, slit the throat of her best friend, and killed her. And then he slit her throat and left her for dead. She was one very lucky girl. The sheath surrounding her aorta was knit. But it didn't do the aorta itself. So she had severed vocal cords and a nick on her aorta. And that's when she proved she wasn't just lucky. She was one of the bravest little kids I've ever heard of. She got up and walked half a mile at 4 o'clock in the morning down a gravel road with rattlesnakes and... Uh, and scorpions and cactus all around her till she got to a home. She couldn't speak, so she wrote things down on a piece of paper, and they got help for her, and she was airlifted out to a hospital. When she came out of the hospital, out of the surgery, rather, she still couldn't speak because everything had just been sewn back together, she wrote a note that said, get the cops. And the police came, and they brought, her, brought a forensic artist. And this little child, who could not speak, was able to work with a forensic artist and create a drawing that had the man who committed that crime identified within an hour. The police went, made plans then to pick him up, and it was a good thing they did because he was planning on leaving town after he killed somebody else who had gotten on his nerves. Wow. Uh, that, that's, that's quite the courage for someone that's um, pretty young. How, how old was she? Ten years old. That's amazing. And when I heard about that, Al, it, um, it just echoed in my past. Because when I was nine, this man pulled up asking for directions. And I went towards his car. He opened the door to show me a map. But actually, it wasn't a map. He was exposing himself. He grabbed hold of my upper arm and tried pulling me into the car. And if he'd had another minute, he would have succeeded. But just then, another car came up over the hill and laid on its horn. He let go of me and took off. But I knew from watching reruns of Dragnet on TV that Sergeant Friday would want me to remember that license plate. So that's exactly what I did. I memorized it as he drove off, and I kept repeating it till I got back home. I told my mother she called the police, and when they stopped him, they found evidence in the trunk of his car that the month old earlier he had sexually assaulted and murdered an eight-year-old girl. Yeah. So when I heard Crystal's story, it was like what I did times 100. 
and she was my new hero, and I just had to write her story. Yeah, it it, it means something then to you when you write these stories. So they, they it's it's kind of how you associate with yourself. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I I've done extensive reading just because I was left as a child with two questions: How could someone even think about doing that? And the other question was, why me? Why was I a victim? And so those are the kind of things I, I answers I've been searching all my life for. And so, w- with yourself, so um, you've got into this um, true crime area, and now that story with Crystal, the ten-year-old. Now that's um, there. That's a pretty complex story too, right? Because it goes further. He was a. Uh, pretty big serial killer wasn't he He had quite a few bodies he had been killing for two decades he confessed to about 70 crimes I mean 50 crimes and said he was 70 percent complete and they have been able to confirm 20 percent of them some of them though were so far in the past that um he didn't remember their names, and they couldn't figure out who he was talking about. And, of course, he didn't have GPS coordinates to send him exactly where he left the body. So there was no way with that much passage of time to figure out a lot of them. And and some of them were just so vague. Like he said, well, I got in a fight with this black man, and I killed him in uh, downtown Detroit and threw him in a dumpster. Well, you know... Uh, at that point in time in Detroit, uh, I think there was a murder capital of the United States. So trying to figure that out is almost impossible. Um, but there are others that he's been linked to. And then, um, you know, and, and then he confessed one to me that he had not confessed to the Texas Rangers. And that got a little crazy, too, because um, there was a woman who had been sentenced to 65 years in prison for killing her 10-year-old son. And he's sitting there telling me that he'd killed the boy. Wow. And and so did... Um, I, I, so you brought that forward to the police then, right? No, because I knew that, the, that the pro, from things the prosecutor said that there was no sense, I saw him interviewed on TV, there was no sense to go to him. If I had given him any information or to the police, it would have just been thrown in the trash. I mean, they made up their mind, despite the fact that this woman passed three lie detector tests, including one they gave her, showing that she was not responsible. And when it was time at her first trial, in her first trial, of course, it already happened, um, the prosecutor stood up there and said, we recovered no stranger fingerprints in the home. Well, I know that Sells never left fingerprints behind at any of his crime scenes either. So that was kind of irrelevant. But what was even worse is I found out later nobody dusted for fingerprints in that home. So not only didn't it matter, but it was misleading. And then the uh, prosecutor also said, no one comes into your home and takes a knife from the kitchen and kills someone. Well, Sells had done that numerous times. So that the, the prosecutor obviously decided he was guilty and would not acknowledge any other possibility, period. So I simply put it in the book, and I thought, listen, if I put it in the book, it's part of his story because he confessed to me, whether he did it or not. And if I put it in the book and it's true, somebody who knows more than I do can take that information and run with it. And sure enough, that's what happened. Uh, two months after the book came out, I heard from uh, her appeals attorney. Then I heard from the Innocence Project. Then I heard from the Center for Wrongful Convictions. Then I testified at the Prison Review Board up in Chicago. And ultimately, 
she got a new trial. She was acquitted. And then she took it a step further. She did something that is not easy to do. She managed to get a certificate of actual innocence from the state of Illinois. Wow. So, so, so she took it all the way. Um, yeah. So whatever happened with the prosecution? Did, now, so when things like that happen, uh, the prosecutor and things like that never really get bothered, right? As in, like, they just yeah. keep going forward, nothing happens to them, no, it doesn't matter. Well, after the first trial, he kept saying, that went his way, he kept saying, you have to respect the jury's verdict. Well, after the second trial, when it didn't go his way, he didn't even stick around to hear the verdict because he knew it wasn't going to go his way. And then, you know, his comment to the media is, well, the jury messed up. Well, I'm sorry. You either believe in the jury system or you don't. You accept their verdicts or you don't. You don't uh, try to say, oh, they're stupid because they disagree with me. Yeah, yeah. And so when cases like that go this way, like when it ends um, good, that's great. But when it ends the way you know it shouldn't end, uh, yeah. does, does that really frustrate you? Does that really take you to somewhere else? Like uh, uh, when you know kind of what the truth is and yet it goes through the system and doesn't come out that way? It's very aggravating. And, you know, it's, it could have easily, easily gone that the wrong way for Julie. Uh, you know, despite everything that everyone was doing, it could have gone uh, toward injustice instead of toward justice. It, it's, it's a human system, and human systems always have flaws. So we make mistakes because we're people. So you just don't know when it's going to happen. And you look at so many cases, and I, I remember back, oh, in the 60s, I read a book about the Carl Chessman case, and, and I'm still not sure whether Carl Chessman was the red light rapist or not, but I think there were enough questions that nobody should have executed him. And there are people on death row today that there are no good arguments for, uh, and there's no saving grace to anything about them. But there are others who you look at the case and you go, well, this is not outrageous by the prosecution, but it's a little questionable. Should we be executing this person when we're not 100% certain? Or for that matter, the people that are sitting in jail, over 100 people in Dallas County have been freed because the uh, the prosecutor there, the district attorney there, decided to partner with the Innocence Project and get the DNA tested on a bunch of these cases that happened before there was the kind of DNA testing we have now. And more than 100 people, mostly rapists, supposed rapists, have been let free because it was proven they didn't commit the crime. Yeah. So that's really ruined their lives. It's uh... Yes, it ruins their lives. And not only that, here is, from a society viewpoint, the most horrible thing is that they put someone behind bars for a crime while the real perpetrator is standing out there laughing ready to victimize one more person than another and another and another. Because when they get away with the crime, they're empowered to commit another one. Yeah, yeah. Has this this case led you to uh, sort of a, a different perspective of the whole legal system then, or...? Well, it, to a certain degree, you know, I, I was raised in a very uh, typical middle-class home, and you always uh, uh, assume that uh, the authorities are in the right, and it, it, or at least even if they're wrong, they have the best of intentions. But this has made me aware of one thing 
that is a little frightening. And it is that some prosecutors understand their mission. They know that they are charged by whatever jurisdiction they are hired in. They are charged to seek truth and find justice. That means if they think something is wrong, even in a past case, they need to do something to make it right. They don't need to stand in the way of DNA testing. They don't need to stand in the way of new evidence coming forward. But many of them refuse to accept the responsibility for the mission of their job. And there are others, like the one I mentioned in the county of Dallas, in Texas, who is dedicated to his mission. He knows that the most important thing is not winning a case. But the most important thing is getting the right person behind bars. And part of the reason why the wrong person comes under suspicion in the first place is that police officers, like all of us, have our, we all have our own preconceived notions about so many things. And we make assumptions based on our experiences in life and what we know. But when that, when that creates a tunnel vision so that we can only see one piece of the puzzle instead of the big picture, that's when mistakes are made. When you're looking at, you're going, I know it's got to be this guy. So you ignore everything that says it's not that guy. And you embrace everything that says it could be that guy. That's when there's trouble. I mean, sometimes people berate police officers because we're looking from the outside in and going, oh, it's so obvious that John killed his wife, Mary. And they don't understand that it might look obvious, but if there's any other possibility, no matter how remote, they need to get in there and investigate that too for multiple reasons. For one, what if they're wrong on their first conclusion? And for the other, if they get into a courtroom and they haven't examined all the possibilities, the defense is going to bring them up and try to make them look bad. So they need to look beyond what they first think. And most of them do. But some of them get caught up in this perpetual wheel of preconceived notions and don't go beyond it. Hmm. So it's more about winning the case than necessarily getting what's right. Yes, yes. You know, and and it, uh, and some of the pressure comes on top. You know, if, it, if there's more pressure to just put someone behind bars for this crime than there is to make sure you find the right person to charge for this crime, then they got problems. And and a lot a lot of what goes wrong yes, there are bad cops, just like there's bad everything. But a lot of what goes wrong in any investigation comes from pressure at the top to cut corners or to do things in a way that is, that is quicker and shows results faster. Hmm. And and so how does that make you feel? Like, Because uh, you also wrote The Mummy's Little Girl, um, and that was with the Casey Anthony trial. Now, I, without saying that she was guilty, <laughs> um, which I guess a lot of people sort of have that thought, she was... Uh, found not guilty and I sort of think that the the, the whole trial they, they sort of I, I think the jury decided on things that were not really evidence exactly exactly that's what they did um, they looked at what was said in the opening statements by the defense and they went oh those are true statements. They are not um, simply things that 
the uh, that the, the defense wants you to believe. These are facts. Well, that's not true. Um, they're supposed to tell you what they intend to prove in the courtroom, and they never did prove that. And I think that it it's hard for the average person who doesn't have experience with the courts to catch the nuances here and understand the differences. And um, uh, it, it's just, I, I, I guess I think that maybe the judges should be able to say, now, in the opening statements you were told A, B, and C, and no attempt was made to prove A, B, and C, so discount that completely. But they don't let judges do that. Um, Maybe jurors should be more educated. Maybe before they actually sit down at a trial, they should be educated in straightforward, common-sense language about what legal terms mean and what legal charges mean and what the end result will be. And I don't think, I don't think anybody on that jury went in there and said, I don't care what anybody tells me, I'm going to find her not guilty just because I feel like I mean, nobody said that. It was just, I think, that in some ways they were misled. They didn't understand what they were doing. And when you listen to what they said afterwards, you can't really make that generalization just because you disagree with them. But when you listen to the jurors that spoke afterwards, they talked about, the guilt of uh, of the, her father, not about the guilt of Casey Anthony. They are saying that her father did it, and or that they suspected he did it. But there was no evidence to show that, none whatsoever. There was no proof presented in the courtroom, and it was all the opening statements and the closing statements of the defense. And I think it's a shame because it proves that injustice can be delivered either way. It can be delivered by convicting an innocent person and by letting a guilty person walk free. So then, you know, but then the, the whole system's kind of becoming um, too complicated and becoming uh, more again about, about uh, expenses and how much money you can afford. You know, what kind of lawyers? Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's a big difference. You know, you look at uh, somebody that's got a whole lot of money could commit a really gross and horrible crime, but I thought they're not going to get the death penalty. I don't care how bad it is what they did. It's unusual, highly unusual, because they have a good lawyer, and they can pay for a good lawyer, and they can pay for good investigators and good professional witnesses, and they've got all this money at their disposal. But you take some poor guy who's got to take a court-appointed attorney. And, you know, in, in the laws, the standards for that are so different. You go from one state to another. I mean, some people uh, are lucky enough that they have trained, experienced people in a public defender's office they can turn to. But others only have appointed attorneys. And there have been many cases where someone is appointed to handle a murder trial who has never in their life done a murder trial. Now, how fair is that? Right. And they're, they're quite... and just because you're poor, you should still get the same justice as a rich man. Yeah. And they're quite overloaded, the uh, public defenders. Yes, they are. It's, it's like any um, public service that is offered by the government, there is too much push towards keeping the payroll down than there is towards raising the level of service. And uh, when people start screaming, we need less government employees, what they're saying, in effect, is that we don't care what kind of service you get. We're just doing this to do it. And it, it, that makes no sense because yeah. you wear out people who are working there and uh, they get burned out. And when you're burned out, you either quit and somebody else has to be trained 
or you get surly, and who wants to deal with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I've seen that on 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 Vice where they they, they were doing that about the uh, um, point uh, the appointed attorneys, and then plus the uh, the whole idea of paying a bail and and how they'll have 70, 80 cases a week, and they'll just tell their client to uh, take a plea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the client can't afford bail. And uh, so it's kind of getting out of hand a little bit, I think, uh, for the average citizen. Well, you know, it, the whole economic city, the whole economic system right now is more skewed towards the top than it has been in um, in a century. I mean, it's it's very very skewed, and somehow we need to deal with that so that it doesn't require income distribution, which people decry, but it doesn't require that to make the playing field level. There are ways to do that, and. We just need to have, to make it something that we understand the importance of. That in every aspect of our not lives, we need to have a level playing field so that we have more real justice and more accountability for those who do wrong. Right, right. And and you know, each case is different. I know when you were talking about the the sales murder he he did a lot of murders randomly as well which isn't very common for mass murderers is it well you know he was very proud of that too uh, it, it was bizarre talking to him uh he uh he he told me that he thought um bundy was a pervert and i said why do you say that he could only kill one kind of person it had to be a girl with long dark hair that's sick yeah, and he said um, Manson was a coward, and only I think he said it in an obscene way, but basically said he was a coward because he couldn't do his own killing. Um, and he had all these opinions about different people, and he was kind of proud of himself because he he could kill men, women, children. He could use. Any weapon he had at hand, he could strangle, stab, shoot, anything, you know. And he was proud of his proclivity to have diversity in his killing. It's bizarre. It's pride in your job, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, and and that's part of the problem why he was able to go along so long um, is that no matter what kind of database, and the databases were new back then, but even when they were new, you couldn't match him up because if you'd had a murder where he stabbed somebody and a murder where he strangled somebody, you you don't have a commonality there. So how can you link these cases together in any kind of logical way? You cannot. He's really, when it comes to serious serial killers, he's a bigger nightmare than someone like Ted Bundy because you can't find a pattern. Right. Well, so when you, you actually got to meet him and talk to him. Yes. And, and so, now was that, I guess, the first time you met um, an accused serial killer and got get to talk to them? Well, yeah, um... You know, I've had a pretty sheltered life. I was just a normal kid, raised in a normal kind of middle-class household. I had nothing fancy. Uh, What did I know about evil? I mean, I had no clue. When I met him, um, it didn't take me long to realize this is the most evil person I have ever spoken to in my life. But in a relative manner, that didn't really matter because I wasn't talking to criminals, you know, I, I, the worst, I think, there was a guy in my church growing up that embezzled money from somebody, but, you know, I, I was kind of remote from that, I was a kid, so it's, um, it was very different for me, and 
one of the things that was so hard was not to show repugnance. And I don't think I did the best job of it, but I tried really hard because I knew if I acted like he sickened me, he would stop talking to me. Right, right. So so there was a certain sense of, of course, man- manipulation on his part. Yeah, well, and... He, there was a lot of manipulation on his part. I mean, in the, in the beginning, it was all about money, money, money. He wants money, money, money. And uh, then he moved on to where he wanted me to talk dirty to him and write him dirty letters, and I wasn't going to do that either. Uh, so, But the manipulation always continued. But the more time I spent with him and the more time I talked to the Texas Rangers, I developed my own manipulation strategy because that was the only way to deal with him. I had to manipulate him to a certain degree in order to get his cooperation. He thought of me as a friend, which sometimes just really creeped me out when I thought about it, but I tried not to think about that. So it's almost like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, because you you can't you can't show what you're really thinking most of the time, and um, and I guess and there were sometimes when he'd be in a because because I met with him more than twenty times, and there were sometimes he'd be in a really kind of lighthearted mood, and he'd be telling jokes, I'd be laughing at his stupid jokes, and um, then when I'd leave after one of those times, I felt even worse because I was going. Oh, that's just so creepy that you had, you know, a normal kind of conversation with someone that is just so horrible. But then other times he would try his best to upset me. He would describe some of his crimes in very, very graphic and obscene detail. And I had to listen to it and try to keep my face blank. And that was very, very hard. Did you ever worry about um, him getting out or hurting you or following up? Like when you write a book, something like this, about how he's going to feel of what you've written. Well, you know, I, I didn't think that he would do anything. But then one of the Texas Rangers said to me, you do have uh, an escape route laid out, right? And I said, pardon? And they said, well, you know, he's, I doubt if he'll ever get out of death row, but break out of there. But if he is getting transported to, an, to another jurisdiction on other charges, or if he's going down to the hospital in Galveston, um, that is a time when sometimes accidents happen. And so you should know exactly where you're going to go to get away from your home with your loved one before it does. You need to be prepared. And I thought they were just being kind of paranoid cops. And so I went to see a psychologist with some of the letters that he sent me. And and she looked him. He looked him over, and he said, "Oh dear, uh, you realize that if he ever gets out, he's coming straight for you." I said, "What?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, um, he's coming straight for you because he sees you now as part of his personality. He has incorporated you into his personality, so he will come straight to you, thinking that you will run off with him." Now, when you don't run off with him of your own free will, that's when things will get ugly. Well, uh, so I thought she was. I thought he was nuts. So I went and saw a woman psychologist who, basically, a psychiatrist who basically says the same thing. So yeah, I guess I was, but I really, in a lot of ways, went into this project very innocent and unknowing about a lot of things and. Um, it was an education. Yeah. Yeah. Because now it's more about what you know after the fact. 
than, yeah. than going yeah. in, right? So, so did he come from like a real terrible background? Oh, or? he had a horrible, horrible background. He told me about it, and I doubted that it was truthful. So I asked his mother, who said, oh, yeah, so what? A lot of people come from worse, and they turn out okay. So, he, and yeah, so that goes, oh, great, you know, that's another part of the equation. But he uh, was 18 months old when he and his twin sister both got very ill with spinal meningitis. And they were extremely sick and high fevers. It killed his little sister, but he survived. Soon after that, and and so here's a twin who is grieving over losing a twin, even though he doesn't understand why or anything. There's still a grief process for a little baby like that. And suddenly his mother decides to leave him with Aunt Bonnie because she's got to move and he's just going to be underfoot. So she leaves him with Aunt Bonnie, which was supposed to be a week or two, well, it turned into years. And suddenly, little Tommy is old enough to go off to school. So Bonnie says, hey, you know, you either need to give me guardianship papers or give me custody. He's like one of our family. I'll be glad to adopt him, anything, but I do need to get him to school. And his mother was furious. He, She jerked little Tommy out of the only home he could remember and took him off with her and would not let him see his cousins or his Aunt Bonnie again. So there's another major loss in his life. Then she had him around for a couple years and kind of got tired of, of dealing with him. And she lets him go live with a pedophile. Mm. And when Tommy sat and told me about that first night, I my heart so ached for that little seven or eight year old boy. I just I just I just couldn't believe the horrible pain. He went through uh, being um, discarded and left again and again, and then dumped with the man who would do that to him. And and it, it was not very difficult for me to feel a lot for that little boy. It didn't explain any of his adult choices. He didn't have to go on and kill people, but that's what he chose to do. Wow. Well, you know, it's, it certainly didn't help having that kind of start and no support. No, no. Uh, they expected that there had been um, some traumatic change to his brain from the high fevers he had, because he had excruciatingly high fevers when he was sick at, sick, sick at 18 months. Um, there's also suspicion that he had a head injury, but... You know, it it takes more than that to become the monster that he was. Uh, And some of it does involve choice. And he told me that the first time he killed, it was accidental, but he really liked the way it made him feel. Well, uh, how old was he when he did that? Do you know? 15 or 16. Wow. So, so where, how did this end? Like, where did he end up? So he ended up on death row, um, convicted, I would say, of something? Yes, he was convicted of the murder of um, Katie Harris, which was the one with Crystal Searles. He's also um, got, that's what he got the death penalty for. He also got a life sentence for the murder of Mary B. Perez. Um and he and a lot of other jurisdictions has have proclaimed him guilty of the crime. Um, uh, most of them are of the mindset that he is now uh, he was locked up with Texas, and if anybody's going to give him the death penalty, Texas will. 
and it becomes extremely complicated when someone is on death row to move them to another state for a trial. So they were just waiting just in case one of his appeals worked, but none of his appeals worked. He was executed in April of 2014. Wow. And so, um, you know, you talked to his mother and... His mother died before he did. Okay. But I did talk to his mother while she was still living. And uh, she is totally unrepentant. Uh, She does not accept any responsibility. And, um, you know, she's a piece of work. Yeah, it must be. And, you know, and the 10-year-old girl that escaped, Crystal, so how how did it kind of um, go for her after this? Was this uh, affected her life, or I guess it would? Well, at the time, her mother and her were and, and, and were moving down to, to Texas. That was the plan from um, the, from Oklahoma, and that changed that completely. So she never moved to Texas, but she went on to um, successfully complete school, and she's in her adult life now. So she's doing. She has recovered well physically and by all accounts emotionally and is building her future. Well, that's something. I guess that it turned out okay that way. Huh. And and so did this change the way you wrote afterwards? So after you've been through this and you approach another true crime, I guess it makes you a little wiser? Yes. And um, the next book I wrote was also about a serial killer, but I never had a chance to interview him because when the police closed in, he put a bullet in his head. So, um, you know, nobody could interview him after he was caught. But it made me understand more about what drove him and um, more about serial killers in general because I did have a really in-depth look, more than 20 uh, lengthy interviews as well as 100 or so letters from cells, I really got a very in-depth look at his thinking process. And it helped me to understand the way some of the others think. But at the same time, uh, if you don't have the kind of twisted thinking that someone has to have to can kill and continue killing. It's still, in another way, very, very difficult to understand. You can strip it to bare bones and get the logic of it, but you really can't feel the emotion of it. Hmm. Yeah, it's got to it's got to really change you. And, and so now your latest book, Undercover of the Night. What what's the little bit of synopsis about that so people kind of know? That is about one of my favorite things to write about. Actually, women who should not have been anyone's victim. This is a woman who is a professional. She was well-loved by all her friends, respected and cherished by the people who worked for her. She was the mother of three young boys. She was everything you could want her to be, uh, except she was blind a little bit about the capabilities of her husband. And wait a minute, I just confused the story. She didn't have any children. I switched over to another story. I've written about three women like that, but um, Jocelyn Ernest was an athlete. She was a competitor. She was a star on West Virginia's university's basketball team. And she uh, worked for Genworth and she was rising in the company with her salary going up. She married someone who was equally athletic, and they looked from the outside like a perfect match. 
But the problem with her husband was he's too controlling. And that is the big danger that so many women don't see. They don't understand where it can lead to. They love this guy. And so, yeah, they want to make him happy. So they go along. But that's a trap. If you go along with this controlling behavior, eventually you'll find yourself boxed into a place where you can't get out. And when Jocelyn did break out, it didn't take very long for her to lose her life. Mm. Sounds pretty traumatic. Um, uh, how did, so how did that end up? It ended up um, with her, uh, although her spouse thought he had done the perfect murder and he made it look like suicide and he thought he was smarter than everybody uh, and that he, you know, he was a high school administrator. He could get away with this. He could pull this off. Well, he didn't. He is now serving uh, life in prison without parole. Wow. And so what's your general opinion on, on, on serial killers and the fact of uh, certain ones that, that hang on to the, I don't know, I guess you'd say popularity. They stay in, in fashion, I guess you would say, like, uh, how, like Jack the Ripper and Zodiac and certain ones like that are still um, creating lots of, uh, like there's new books and new theories and, and continued movies and stuff. Why is there certain ones that, that do that year after year? Well, some of them do it for one big reason, is that the pattern is obvious, but the suspect isn't. And there, uh, there are debated theories over who this person is, and but there's never been an account that brought someone brought to justice and declared absolutely positively this is the person who did it. So that does keep interest up. And and then there are others, you know, like Manson, that it, it's just inexplicable by nature uh, that all these people could fall under his spell and do his bidding. So it was something bizarre bizarre about him and uh you know so there there are certain things that spark interest like i imagine that um cells will go in and out of favor over the decades as far as the interest in him because he is unusual you know he he didn't stick to a pattern like ted bundy he um was willing to kill whomever just when the mood struck him and that is is definitely not typical so I do think that um, over time he'll fade in and out of the public's attention um, and why are we so fascinated by serial killers in general I, I think a lot of it has to do with um our ability to manage our, our fears. I remember once, uh, I, I was I had a very little girl, a little toddler, and I ran across an article that said that little girls have more problem managing their fears because all of the toys we give them are sweet and cuddly and nice. And boys do better because they have toys that are like, monsters and soldiers and things like that and I think our fascination for serial killers is sort of that same kind of thing that we want to know about them so that we can learn how to protect ourselves from them and yes statistically it's it's there's nothing you can do if you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's so unusual. I mean, yes, it's far more likely to die in a car accident. But heavens, if we worried about dying in the car accident every time we got behind the wheel, 
uh, we soon become a very immobile society. So there's certain things we can allow ourselves permission to dwell on because although they are horrible things, you can't necessarily see them as being part of your life because the statistics aren't in that favor, you know? Yeah, yeah. How, how many serial killers do you think there are right now in uh, the U.S. going on at a time? You know, the best thing I ever heard uh, about that was from a Texas Ranger. And he said, it's that you knew how many people were running around the country killing like cells at any given time. It would blow the skirt up over your head. He said, we have no way of knowing the exact number. They're everywhere. So that makes you wonder how many actually get away with it. I do think that there are a lot that, um, like cells, who don't have a specific pattern. When you have the pattern and people are putting stuff into a database, the patterns are popping out, and you can start linking crimes. And when you can link crimes, you can get a roadmap. And it makes it far easier to find who you're dealing with. It's not like a ghost in the night. But when you've got cases like cells that they pop up in one part of the country, then another part of the country, then another one, I mean, coast to coast, how can you nail that down when you're not dealing with the same weapon or the same kind of victim or the same place or the same anything? It makes it extremely difficult. So those are the ones that I think are more likely in these days and times when we do have access to so much more data. It makes it more likely that the ones that are not obsessed with a certain type of killing or a certain type of person to kill are more likely to be able to continue it for a long time. Do you think the serial killers have changed over time? I mean, as in what they were 100 years ago to what they are now? I think that um, psychologically you've probably got a lot of the same things going on, but what makes it more likely for a serial killer to exist, I think, is um, our mobile society, that uh, it's less and less common to go to a place where people suspect all strangers instantly. You know, it's, the world's such an open place now. Um, you go back, uh, you know, before the car, and people, unless they were, you know, part of the Great Westwood Ho, they were for the most part staying pretty still. They didn't move away from family. They didn't move away from their roots. The average person just stuck around in the same general area where uh, they began their lives. And when when it's like that, even if you are a potential serial killer, you are far more likely to get caught on the first or second time because you're in an environment where it's easy to examine all the pieces of the puzzle and figure out who might have done it. Right, right. So what are your biggest influences? Like what do you like to read and, and, and watch um, for movies and TV and books? Well, uh, I, I like to read mysteries, of course. James Lee Burke is my favorite writer. But I also like to read a lot of science books. Um, so, you know, I'll, uh, I'll read all sorts of things that people find odd, like... Um, uh, the the books about by Sam Keen that he writes about different things like the periodic table and neurosurgeons and you know just strange things like that because I do have a very uh, scientific leaning mind and so uh, I like reading stuff like that also like history because it is amazing to me every time I read a good book of history I realize how much we are repeating ourselves and making the same mistakes over and over again, which is really baffling when you start thinking about it. Mm. And then um, otherwise, uh, as far as movies, uh, I uh, I don't go to movies much 
But I do uh, watch them on, with my Netflix account. But I probably watch more British mystery series on Netflix than anything else. I, I love them a lot. And I like Criminal Minds and Modern Family. Those are probably my two favorite contemporary TV shows. <laughs> and so what do you got coming up next? Um, what, what's next for you? Um, I have got two books coming out next year. One of them is fiction. The other one is true crime, and it's called Bitter Remains. And it is about an actress who was in uh, the Stepford Wives, the remake um, of Stepford Wives, and a musician who uh, played in the local circuit in in Raleigh, North Carolina, and also uh, down on the Virgin Islands. And when the two of them marry, um, they're involved in a custody case for the actor's two boys, and the custody case is not going the way they want, so their solution is to kill the mother of the two boys. And um, they do that in their apartment in Raleigh. And when um, they finish... They get a uh, saw and cut up her body and put the pieces in a cooler. Then they drive halfway across the country to Texas, and they dump the body in a creek. Oh. Well, that, that certainly sounds interesting. Yeah, um, I, I hope to have you back. Um, that comes out next year, or we can maybe do a, 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 another... Another interview about that. Yeah, that's a it's a pretty it's a pretty bizarre case, and uh, the uh, male perpetrator is a pretty bizarre person mm. with some strange, strange beliefs. And he's the kind that you know you wonder if he'd gotten away with this, how many more people would have died eventually. Yeah, yeah. You have to wonder about that too. I, I I often hear that when, and then when someone gets caught, there's always a time period of you have to wonder where they had done nothing, if they really had done nothing or things happened. Yes, yes. Well, like the second tier of killer I wrote about, uh, there is a strong, strong belief among law enforcement that he wasn't really quiet during those times that. It seems like he was quiet, that, that there were other people who uh, lost their lives that we just don't know about. And, um, and and a lot of times, well, the name of the book's Into the Water, and he, his forensic countermeasure was when he was done with bodies, he put them in the water. And there's, there's nothing much you can do to recover a lot of the evidence that's on a body once it's been dumped in the water. You know, it's uh, washes away a lot of sins. So um, it, it it can be very tricky. And when someone gets away with it, it does empower them. You know, it's it's like the little kid that goes into a store and swipes a candy bar and and maybe feels really guilty about it, but really enjoys the candy bar and then realizes he didn't caught, get caught and nobody thinks he did wrong and nobody's looking at him funny and, you know, and a little ways down the road, what's he doing? He's swiping something bigger. Mm, yeah, it just keeps going. You know, and you expect that kind of behavior from kids, but when you're talking about something um, adults do, like taking lives, it becomes a very threatening phenomenon. So um, how do people get a hold of you, or if they have an idea or story uh, they want to tell you, um, how do you like them to contact you? Well, uh, if you go to my website, uh, my email is on my website, and you can send me an email through there. And um, I do uh, try to get back to everyone who writes to me as quick as I can, but sometimes depending on what's going on in in, uh, deadlines and stuff, it may take me a little while. Sometimes I do get an awful lot of email, and that that takes me some time, too, because I don't want to just 
blow people off. I want to give them an honest answer. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. And so that would be uh, dianefanning.com? Yes, sir. Sure would. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you for taking the uh, time to uh, sit and chat with us a little bit about your books and true crime. Well, thank you for having me, Al. It's nice to talk to your listeners, and uh, I wish you the best of luck as your show goes forward. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back.